0: The more people who are inspired both by the moral fervour and the evidence on which we can act, the more likely we are to get political change.
1: Hi, my name's Dr Rachel Steen, and I'm a GP registrar working in Sheffield. Unfortunately, despite our best efforts, patients most in need don't get the best care. This problem is present and very real in the UK. I feel, with increasing challenges and changes in both our health and social care services, health inequality needs to be at the top of the agenda. Despite having had a keen interest in population health and preventative medicine throughout my training, I find tackling health inequalities often feels complex with no obvious solutions. Throughout this podcast I aim to simplify this. I'll be talking to some of the most experienced colleagues in the field hoping to fuel interest, inspiration and further discussion around this challenging topic. So we have a very special episode of Finding Fair Health today. If health inequalities could have a rock star, here he is, Professor Michael Marmot. When I first started the podcast this time last year, it was a mere pipe dream to share a conversation with this man. A man who has been at the forefront of epidemiology and building evidence around the challenge of health inequality and why this is so important. His early work has been the foundation of thinking about the impact of social gradients on health. He has published a number of internationally best-selling books, *Status Syndrome and The Health Gap. And he has been awarded honorary doctorates at a whopping 18 universities. His award cabinet must be bursting to the seams with all the accolades he has collected over the years, including a knighthood. So welcome, Professor Michael Marmot. It's a real privilege to have you. Thank you.
0: Good to be with you.
1: So, um, Michael, it's a really exciting time. We've got the Marmot Report 10 years on, coming out next month. Why now, and how are you feeling about it all?
0: The why now was, I suppose... A spirit of self examination. Are we having any impact? Are we doing any good? Uh, it's all very well to produce reports, give lectures, go around trying to encourage people. What's happening? Now, I don't take it all personally that if good things have happened, I don't say, ah, oh, it's because we did it, or if bad things happened, well, they're ignoring us. But it's still very important. So that's the first. The second, We would have done it anyway, but the context is that life expectancy has stopped improving the way it had for 100 years. It was going up about one year every four years, and in 2011, that slowed down dramatically. Health inequalities are again increasing. And if we look at overall health, not just life expectancy... That's going up a little bit. So ill health, the years spent in ill health is going up a little bit. So all of that suggests this is not good. And it's very difficult to say, ah, if only they'd done what I told them to do, then none of this would have happened. I mean, it's easy to say it, but it's very difficult to show that that is the case. That said, it is important to look at the recommendations we made 10 years ago and to see what's happened and to at least ask the question, could the adverse trends in health be in some way linked to what successive governments did or did not do?
1: Mm, mm. And that's fascinating because that increase in life expectancy has been the bedrock of improving quality of life and for people around the world for the last... and really,
0: since nineteen hundred, been going on. At the end of the nineteenth century, mm-hmm. it's been going on uh, pretty consistently. I mean, there are occasional dips, of course. It's not always at the same rate. But the slowdown that happened in two thousand and eleven is marked. Mm-hmm. And our colleagues in Scotland, who've been looking at the same thing, say this slowdown is unprecedented.
1: Mm. And that's really worrying. So. You mentioned about looking into whether this is the result of successive governments but what what is going on and why why do you think this might be happening? The
0: real answer is that we can't tie it down and say A caused B. Mm -hmm. I'd like to be able to but the careful scientist in me says that's very difficult. That said there have been adverse trends In a number of ways, and we will report this on the 25th of February. But if you look at my original six recommendations, adverse trends in child poverty, decline in funding for education, um, changes in the nature of work, uh, and so on. Uh, So there have been a number of adverse trends. We can't definitely say that change A led to result B what we can see is that things have been moving in the wrong direction. Mm
1: -hmm. Mm -hmm. And one of those groups is um, for women. So if you look at the bottom deciles, um, women's um, life expectancy is particularly decreasing and that gap in life expectancy between the lowest decile and the highest decile is actually even widening. What what do you think is causing that?
0: It's the same difficulty of saying Mm -hmm. that which of the adverse trends might have been responsible for it. The situation with women is alarming because, in general, what we find is that the magnitude of health inequalities are bigger in men than in women. We find that in general, looking Mm -hmm. across Europe, we see every country has life expectancy gaps by years of education. The gaps are smaller in general for women than for Mm -hmm. men. So the fact that we're seeing a particular increase in inequalities in women is marked. And secondly, we see something similar in the United States. Again the inequalities tend to be bigger in men than women but over the last 20 or 30 years there's been not just an increase in equality but a decline in life expectancy for women in the bottom three deciles of income.
1: And that is really worrying isn't it? And is that that's reflected across the whole world and not just the UK is it?
0: It differs. What we We don't have good data on trends in inequalities from lots of countries. We do have data on trends in overall life expectancy. And across Europe, there tended to have been a slowdown from 2011 on, so it wasn't unique to the United Kingdom. But the slowdown was more marked in the UK than Mm -hmm. in other European countries, particularly for women, and right down near the bottom for men. So uh, we do see something of the same phenomenon in other countries, but it's worse in the UK than in other European countries, and even worse in the United States.
1: Fascinating. Um, Michael, I want to thank you and your team, I suppose, because the Michael Marmot label, or I don't know, brand you might call it, Anywhere in this sphere of work and all across the system sort of worships you and when, we, when we're talking about health inequalities with health professionals, when we're teaching about it as part of educational resources, we come back to your stuff and we come back to your stuff to, to sort of really have, make the argument and to, to come back to the evidence. Do you see your role as sort of the evidence provider? What, how, where do you see your role in this?
0: The evidence is key. I spent my life as an academic, um, producing evidence, i doing research and producing evidence and I used to joke that under successive conservative governments, Margaret Thatcher um, and John Major, health inequalities was not on the agenda. They didn't want to know about it. Mm-hmm. So my research was pure research. Blue skies research had no application whatsoever and then the government changed and they decided health inequalities were a priority. So yesterday's Blue Skies research became today's applied research, and I kept going with it. When I chaired the WHO Commission on Social Determinants of Health, I saw my role as changing somewhat. I was no longer just a producer of evidence. I shouldn't say just, because I think that's a very important role, uh, producing, doing research. But I was now a compiler and synthesizer of evidence. But still, the evidence was absolutely key. So for the WHO Commission, we set up nine knowledge networks with scores, if not hundreds, of people from around the world compiling the best evidence on early child development and education and working conditions, income and the like. And the Commission became deliberators on that evidence and we had to use the evidence to formulate recommendations but all of our recommendations were evidence based and i said as because that was the first time i got into doing one of these reports i need to be able to justify every single statement we make in the commission either because we've got strong observational or occasionally trial based evidence, or because I can bring forth a chain of reasoning, we may not have all the evidence we need, but I've got a chain of reasoning that would support it. And I've kept that approach. So what do I mean by chain of reasoning? We know early child development is important. I don't have strong evidence that if we improve early child development now, in 60 years time will reduce health inequalities when those children are adults or the health inequalities now could have been reduced if we'd had better early child development 60 years ago or 70 years ago. I don't really have strong evidence for that. What I do have is strong evidence for inequalities in early child development, good reason to believe that by reduction of child poverty or by supporting parents and families and providing services to improve early child development, children will increasingly become ready for school and perform better in school. They'll do better at age 15 in standardised tests on maths and literacy and science. And if they do better in those tests, they're more likely to go on to get qualifications. And if they get qualifications, they're more likely to have a better job and higher income, and more control over their lives, a sense of empowerment, live in better neighborhoods, and as a result, have better health. So I can support every bit of that chain of reasoning with pretty good evidence. What I don't have is the strong evidence linking early childhood to mortality at age 60 and 70, way in Mm -hmm. the future. But I can support the chain of reasoning based on the evidence so to come back to your question half an hour ago (laughs) how do I see my role Uh, it's still as a synthesizer of evidence as a user of the evidence but then using that evidence to formulate recommendations and present it in the clearest way I know how people often say to me but all this is political well maybe but I don't know how to get into the equivalent of smoke-filled back rooms. I hope they're not smoke-filled anymore. But, you know, (laughs) smoke-filled rooms of wherever the political decisions are made. I don't know how to do that. And those who do know how to do it, great. Take the evidence we produce and try and get the political change that's necessary. But presenting it, as I say, in a spirit of social justice, so making the moral case, the evidence tells us what what the problem is and what needs to be done, and we need to to make the moral case for doing it.
1: Mm -hmm. And is that moral case enough to to get that change, people to to listen and, and go forth with that?
0: It's enough in my experience, to get Mm -hmm. people to listen and to go forth. And your introduction to this question would confirm that. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's not enough to get political change, Mm -hmm. but uh, the more people who are inspired both by the moral fervor and the evidence on which we can act, the more likely we are to get political change.
1: In your book, The Health Gap, you talk about the triangle that moves mountains, so, yes. the, so the three bits that make that up, so academia and knowledge, government and the people. And so, in my mind, I feel that some of your stuff is around the knowledge and the academia, and then there's also the government and the people. So there's, there's definitely something that needs to come together in
0: Absolutely, that. absolutely. Um, and I don't think that we've done as good a job as we could in getting mm-hmm. the people organised Um, But what I find is when I meet people and they say, good heavens, we didn't know any of that. They know it's important, but they didn't realize that's what health is about. So they know having a safe place for their children to play is important, being able to give their children the opportunities that other children have. Is important. They didn't realise that that's a key determinant of their children's health. They thought health was about seeing your mm. GP, um, not the social determinants of health. So we haven't done a good enough job in bringing the population with us on these important issues.
1: And how how do you unite people around that goal? Because there must be some naysayers and people who aren't united around that goal. Well, we know that there are. There are many people who aren't united
0: around that goal. Yeah, they tend not to invite me to their meetings. <laughs> <laughs>
1: so, I don't... I mean, so,
0: I, just because it's fresh in my mind, mm. um, after I was in Delhi last week, I then went to a conference in Odisha State, was Orissa, in Bhubaneswar of health e- economists and planners. Now, health economists, in general, don't see health inequalities is their major issue they're interested in efficiency and value for money and the like not equity but the theme of this conference of health economic health economists and planners was social determinants of health which is why they invited me to go and i'm not i can't claim that i've got evidence that i engaged everybody in the room but I engage some people to think about this seriously as the key issue. So, in my experience, but it may be a very biased experience, the naysayers are not really doubting the evidence. They just have other priorities and other concerns. Uh, It's not that they think social determinants of health are unimportant, they're surgeons they've got things to do um, and or they're endocrinologists or they're molecular biologists and they've got things to do other things to do and that's fine <laughs> you know I don't expect everybody to down tools and stop their expertise so there's not so much that they're says, it's more we're busy over here but I would like public health and I would like people in primary care to say, yes, this has to have a central place in our concerns. Mm
1: -hmm, mm -hmm. It's interesting that you mention um, the economists in that, because that's something I find quite interesting. And you mentioned in the original Marmot report that your approach to it was that you looked at the costs of doing nothing. With the rhetoric from government changing, particularly after the last election, we've got spending back on the table having had years when we've not had that. Do you think this is a a good opportunity to change that approach? And does does that come out in the 10 years on recommendations?
0: I don't know if it's a good opportunity, but Mm -hmm. it's an opportunity. Um, We have to take the world as we find Mm -hmm. it and do what we can. Mm -hmm. So I think it is an opportunity. Certainly, if the government believes its own rhetoric, it's Mm -hmm. an opportunity. Because the very areas that have been left behind... Uh, in the north of the country where life expectancy decline, particularly for women mm-hmm. and particularly in deprived areas is most marked are the areas where the government claims it wants to spend well we've got a whole series of recommendations to tell them how to spend the money
1: okay brilliant well i'm really looking forward to reading it <laughs> michael you mentioned the importance of public health and primary care as health professionals who listening to this podcast. What can we do? What is our role in all of this and how can we go about tackling health inequalities from your point of view?
0: We produced two reports to answer that question. One when I spent a year as president of the British Medical Association and a second when I spent a year as president of the World Medical Association. And in both cases These are organizations that are concerned primarily with clinical care and the organization of care. I mean, the World Medical Association is a group of national medical associations like the BMA. And so the doctors who come are um, BMA type medical politicians concerned with the services and I came along saying my priority is social determinants of health and they said okay we're convinced but what do you want us to do the question you asked and we said five things in the first one we said six things in the second one the five things that were common to both number one education and training so make sure doctors understand it should be part of undergraduate education and postgraduate education, understand about the conditions in which people are born, grow, live, work and age, and inequities in power, money and resources that give rise to inequities in these conditions of daily life. And we've had contact with several of the medical royal colleges, uh, Royal College of Physicians, psychiatrists, GPs, public health, paediatrics and child health, all of whom are signed up to the importance of education on this. The second is seeing the patient in broader perspective. As we say, you know, there's this group at UCLH, Pathway, that made the strong case to the hospital managers. If we send homeless people back onto the street... That's not very good way to treat people. And if you're not concerned with the moral ethical issue, then what about the financial issue? It's not very efficient use of money either, because if you send them back onto the street to sleep rough, then they come back again quite soon. So seeing the patient in a broader perspective, and that's true whether somebody's sleeping rough or... A man who's lost his job or a woman who's being beaten up by a partner, etc. The third is the health service as employer. And I broaden it now and say the health system having an impact on the community and the broader environment. Green issues very much to the fore, but also having a big impact on the local community. The fourth. Is working in partnership so when a doctor says I can't do this I mean what, what I, you know, how can I do yeah but work in partnership with people who can mm-hmm. social prescribing is now on the agenda people are doing it but that means working in partnership with people who are dealing with the social conditions and the fifth which is why we're talking is advocacy yeah exactly the extra one we put in the WMA report, Doctors for Health Equity, was on monitoring and measurement,
1: Mm. uh,
0: being part of documenting the problem.
1: Fantastic. Well, thank you. Um, And that's lots to take away and think about. I'll put the link to your report on that on our show notes. You mentioned in your book that there was a planet-shaped hole, that a book needs to be written on bringing environmental and the social determinants of health agendas together. Since you've written the book, do you feel like that is happening? Are you aware of what's going on from that point of view? Because obviously that's a big concern for a lot of people around not just climate change, but also health equity as well at the moment.
0: Well, there's still more to do. Mm -hmm. We did more after I wrote The Health Gap. We did a commission for the Pan-American Health Organisation on equity and health inequalities in the Americas, which we published on the 1st of October last year, 2019, and we did more on climate change and environment in that report than I'd done before. I don't think we did enough, so there's still more to do. I am going to chair a subcommittee of the Climate Change Committee on how actions to improve health can contribute to carbon neutrality to meet the government's climate change targets. So it's a move in that direction. I think there's more still to do.
1: Michael, it's so tempting um, to just keep firing questions at you, but I know you're limited on time, so I just want to ask you a few more questions, if that's okay. I know that there's one particular book that is a complete highlight of this podcast, I think, that everyone seems to recommend, which is The Health Gap by Yourself, which is a fantastic book. I'm not going to let you have that one, <laughs> because you wrote it. <laughs> um, but is there one book that you would recommend to um, professionals early on their career, to, trying to find out more about this stuff, or um, some reading that you think that um, they could go away and well, do? Yeah, uh, I've read
0: many of the various books that have been written on health inequalities. Where I get my learning from is from people who are writing on areas that, I find help me understand. So, for example, I've quoted many times Amartya Sen, uh, the many books that he's written. Perhaps the most useful is development as freedom. So he wrote a very long book with all his ideas on justice, ideas, I think he called it the idea of justice, a very long book, which I read cover to cover, but Um, Development is Freedom, which I think came out of some lectures, is probably more accessible to people working in medicine and public health. And it very much has the ideas of capabilities, not just uh, economic success, but dealing with capabilities, and there's a whole capability economics association founded on sense ideas. I hesitate to mention the next one, um, but it was very helpful, which was um, Thomas Piketty's Capital in the 21st Century. I hesitate because it's 860 pages. (laughs) (laughs) But um, for an economics book with a lot of graphs and tables, it's surprisingly readable and very helpful. Um, And I hesitate, but I, I argue with economists all the time On the other hand, I do read some of what they write, and Piketty's Capital in the 21st Century was extremely helpful. And then, just as relief from Piketty, go back and read Dickens. Read, if nothing else, read the first two pages of Great Expectations for the most brilliant summary of uh, what it meant to be living in Victorian times in terms of under five mortality um, conditions of life and how it shaped the rest of life, or read, that's great expectations, or read hard times about growing up in Coke Town, which was probably Manchester or somewhere like that, uh, with terrible, noxious air very limited living conditions, very bad working conditions, and what it does to people's lives. So Dickens is unsurpassed. I mean, we talk about Dickensian working conditions, living conditions. What we talk about less in medicine is Dickensian brilliance, uh, <laughs> capturing a situation and conveying it, uh, in a remarkable fashion so that's not instead of reading 860 pages of economics but it's a very welcome complement to it
1: as well as yeah, brilliant thank you and then Michael our final question is um, always the genie question so the genie appears to you and gives you one wish of something that you could do to improve or you could change something to um, reduce health inequalities What would that
0: one wish be? It would be to put equity at the heart of all government policies. If I thought that we could solve everything by investing in early childhood, that's the one thing we should do, then I'd say that. Or by reducing poverty levels through the tax and benefit system, I'd say that. But I don't think there's one thing to do. I think that's why in my English review I made six recommendations. I think we need to do all of them. So if there's one thing, it's put equity at the heart of all policy making. Mm-hmm. If you're, as a government, going to take a national or a local government, going to take a big policy decision, ask the question what's the likely impact on equity, on the fair distribution? of whatever the outcome is you're seeking. And if you do that, what you will actually be doing is putting health equity at the heart of all policy making. So whether you're reforming the education system, whether you're reforming the prison, the criminal justice system, whether you're dealing with old age, pensions and support for people of older age, or whatever, put equity at the heart and then you'll be putting health equity at the heart of all decision-making.
1: Thank you, Michael, that's that's brilliant. Um, and I hope um, we um, can read more about that in um, the report that's coming out in a few weeks' time. Yes. Um, really, really looking forward to reading that. I feel a little bit starstruck, if I'm honest. <laughs> um, I'm so honoured, to really, really honoured um, to be able to have come here and had a chat with you today. Um, despite your busy schedule and i'm really looking forward to reading the report coming out in a few weeks time so thank you michael and thank you for all your hard work over the years (laughs) it's
0: my pleasure thank you
1: take care thank you all for listening you will be able to find further episodes on the fair health website if you haven't been on there already please do check this out at www.fairhealth.org.uk it is a fantastic educational resource If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, rate and review us. If you have ideas, would like to talk to us, or even if you have a suggestion of someone we could interview for an episode, please do get in touch via Twitter, at FairHealthUK or at RMSteam. It would be great to hear from you. I'm really looking forward to you joining us next time on our journey to finding fair health.